0: This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode.
1: Good evening, everybody. It's Sunday night, November 8th, and this is the election version of the Eye on the Market. I haven't recorded a podcast in a while. Like the rest of you, I've been kind of busy and also transfixed on what's been going on. So I want to just walk you through quickly where we are. We've been sending a lot of information out, um, you know, Eye on the Market-wise in terms of (coughs) what we think about the election. and We had a piece last Friday on the uh, (coughs) Constitutional challenges that could be filed and some court history, um, and then an explanation of that American horror story approach where state legislatures decide to send in competing slates of electors so the Electoral College has two slates from a single state, etc. So I, I, those are all remote scenarios, but uh, I thought it was important to at least spend some time walking through the logistics of them so people understood. Anyway, we have a piece coming out tomorrow called Quiet Flows the Dawn. And, uh, you know, I've been waiting to use that for a while. I was a Russian studies major in the 1980s, um, and that's a 19th century epic novel about some Cossacks. And it happens to fit here, Uh, Quiet Flows the Don. When you look at the election from an investor's perspective, it does look like much more of a referendum on the president himself than on the policy issues that divide Democrats and Republicans. and I'll explain why in a minute. First, and this chart you've seen from us in a, a few times, for the first time in 100 years, a challenger has unseated an incumbent president at a time of strong economic and market tailwinds. And we have this chart that shows how we compute that, but it's pretty straightforward. When you look at Hoover, and you look at Bush Senior, and you look at Carter, uh, and you look at Ford, um, those are presidents uh, that ran as incumbents during very weak periods both in terms of markets and economics. Trump's tailwinds were much higher and uh, really he's the first president, he's the first incumbent president in a hundred years or so to lose uh, at a time of strong tailwinds and the last guy that did was Howard Taft who was so fat they had to bury him in a piano case. Um, or so the rumor goes. So. So what Biden's accomplished is impressive simply, you know, if, if for no other, other reason than for the uh, the uh, the rarity of such an outcome actually happening. But again, when you look at the full scope of the federal and state results, and we don't know which way the Senate's going to go yet, but if we assume that Democrats and Republicans split those two open, open runoff seats in Georgia um, and some other assumptions on some unseated House seats, uh, th- this was not... This was not a clear referendum uh, in terms of policies between Democrats and Republicans. We, we put this chart together that looks at the history of the partisan balance in all of the federal and state government positions. In other words, the House, the Senate, gubernatorial positions, and then the state legislatures, right? the state senates and the state houses, sometimes called assemblies. Forget about a blue wave. According to this index we put together, the democratic tide actually went out a little bit. The uh, the democratic uh, component of this index actually fell a little bit uh, when you when you kind of keep track of all the different things that happened at the federal and the state level. So it, that's pretty much telling us that we are in for a period of divided government um, and the investor playbook that we need to come up with has to be geared towards that. And um, now again, just, just to be clear, Democrats could pull off victories in Georgia, and um, they could decide to jettison the filibuster, um, whose usage has been rising pretty steadily over the last 50 years. We have a chart on that in the, in the Eye in the Market coming out tomorrow. So those things could happen. I, you know, Jettisoning the filibuster when you've got a 50-50 split in the Senate and you're relying on the VP for a tiebreaker would be a pretty bold thing to do. Uh, um, In any case, since the summer of this year, the markets have been favoring a Biden portfolio that was betting on a blue wave and it's been pummeling a Trump portfolio uh, as well. And so now if we get divided government, the path forward may benefit a purple mix of both this Biden and and Trump portfolio. And we kind of walk through the sectors that we feel strongest about. I'll tick through a few of them here. We're still, regardless of the outcome, we're optimistic on on renewable energy. There's probably not going to be a Green New Deal. But the, the president, because of the powers invested in the executive branch, can still increase the cost of capital on oil and gas. They can disallow further LNG export permits, they can tighten fracking and methane rules, particularly on public lands, they can increase climate risk disclosure requirements, reinstate the CAFE standards, which Trump softened in the spring. So there's a lot of things that Biden can do here and his people can do here to effectively increase the cost of capital for oil and gas relative to the cost of capital uh, of, of additional renewable penetration of the grid. So um you know for for what it's worth i still think owning some renewable energy particularly if it sells off here would be inter- would be interesting infrastructure if there's one point of agreement between both parties it's the need to reinvest in some very dilapidated us transportation and maritime infrastructure i think you could get a modest bill in 2021 i don't know if it's a trillion dollars you know we've been spending too many trillions of dollars this year um but i still think that's that's something interesting. Where we're less optimistic is on the China trade war. I think Biden's likely to go very slowly here. I don't think he's going to remove these Trump tariffs during his first 18 months in office. China is only 25 to 50% compliant with the phase one trade deal purchases from the U.S. And um, whether it's for human rights reasons or mercantilism reasons, the anti-China policies are now pretty bipartisan in Washington. Um, Now that we don't think we're going to get a big corporate tax hike, there are companies that benefited from tax hikes in 2017 that that will continue to do so. And we tracked those stocks. They got hurt this year as people uh, started to price in. The probability of a huge corporate tax hike, uh, that doesn't look like it's happening now. And um, with all the money that's being spent, we're, despite the surge in COVID, still anticipating... um, a decent global economic rebound in 2021. So companies with high levels of international sales should do well also. Uh, we're not quite ready to embrace large cap pharma yet. The uh, a bipartisan prescription drug bill is possible. And also the executive branch can implement demonstration projects that effectively bring Medicare Part D drug prices back down to international levels. So um, large cap pharma uh in spite of all the fantastic work they're doing on the on the vaccine trials are um are in the uh the jailhouse in terms of public opinion, um kind of just only ahead of banks maybe. So and then we're neutral on the antitrust targets. I mean the worst the the, the most punitive outcomes for the big four Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, are probably off the table. And if you want to see what those uh those worst case scenarios where the house judiciary report wanted to you know all sorts of rules merger prohibitions uh breaking the big companies up prohibitions on abuse of bargaining power new antitrust laws uh forced data sharing all sorts of stuff like that i don't think that that house judiciary uh report is going to go anywhere on antitrust. even even so there's there's still the justice department case that was just filed against google Um, as we discussed in a piece a couple of weeks ago um, based on the payments that google makes to certain uh, uh, web browser developers and device manufacturers and and uh, people like that I, i i do think there's an interesting case there we'll see how it gets adjudicated in court and there could be a case pending versus facebook as well so we're kind of neutral on these antitrust targets. The, the worst outcomes for them are probably off the table, but there still could be some, um, some difficulties that they'll be facing in 2021. So um, in general, where do we go from here? A, a client asked me to pull this table together on equity returns, whether the, Republic, the president was Republican or Democrat and whether or not they had control of Congress and you know, which party had control of Congress and things like that. The, the highest returns in the post-war era happened during gridlock periods when there was a Democratic president, but I don't think the table's worth very much. The sample sizes are small, and basically the return differences reflect mostly when recessions hurt and how the Fed happened to react to them. So unless you think the presidents in Congress cause recessions or they should get the benefit for inheriting a recovery, uh, most of those returns by party affiliation you know, charts is garbage. So let's focus on the business cycle. Right now, the U.S. and a lot of Europe are in a race against time. The U.S. employment situation is definitely improving. Um, only about half the increase, uh, the remaining increase in unemployment is permanent. The other half is still temporary. And you know, we think we could be at 5% unemployment by the end of next year. Uh, And and when you look at the number of unemployed people relative to job openings, this is, it's much better than in prior recessions. And it's it's a sign that when and if we get through this COVID thing, there could be a very strong and rapid recovery in employment and wages. But, you know, the race against time is getting kind of short. COVID infections, hospitalizations, deaths are rising again. I am still sitting here in my undisclosed bunker with... uh, Not allowing my kids to come out right now. Um, You know, I'm taking the necessary precautions as a person who's 58 and has some comorbidity issues. And so, what's going on here with COVID infections and hospitalizations and everything, this is increasing the chance of lockdowns, which would really jeopardize the employment and spending recovery that we're seeing. And it highlights the importance of three vaccine steps that are all different critical hurdles on the road to herd immunity we need vaccine approval we need vaccine distribution and we need vaccine acceptance those are three different things but you need all three of them we talk about them extensively extensively on our webcasts and on the coronavirus uh, web portal so i'm not going to do all of that again here Uh, um, i think given the election i'll close with the following you know, a greater adherence to scientific principles in Washington can only help on this vaccine acceptance issue. And, and uh, I think a decision by Trump not to fire Dr. Fauci, which he's threatened to do, could be helpful as well in terms of maintaining uh, some level of acceptance for, for science and for vaccines in particular. The United States ranks in the bottom uh, third globally. Uh, with respect to vaccine uh, adherence, believe, trust in science and things like that. So um, if the world's going to get back to normal, it's going to take a really long time to get there um, through herd immunity. Uh, we saw some data a couple uh, last week from the CDC that that by early August, most states other than New York and a couple of other northeastern states were still below 5% in terms of antibody testing. In other words, the serology tests they did showed that we are still a really long way away from herd immunity. So we need vaccine approval, we need vaccine distribution, and we need vaccine acceptance. And, and hopefully in something that's, that's something that the new administration in, uh, in DC will, will work on, on uh, promoting all three of those. So thank you for listening, and I look forward to speaking to you again next time.
0: Michael Semblis' Eye on the Market offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of JP Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.